Hi, and happy Saturday, everyone. Since National Poetry Month is coming to a close, we thought we would return to our episode on Ambrose Bierce today. He was a Civil War veteran, journalist, editor, satirist, and, yes, poet. Although in this episode, we spend more time talking about his other writing. We got some emails after this episode first came out about whether Bierce might have had post-traumatic stress disorder or some other condition stemming from his military service and how that might have affected his writing and the uncertainties around the end of his life. And while that is certainly possible, we don't typically speculate on historical figures' mental health unless people who have a lot more experience in medicine or mental health have already written on that subject. There's a little more writing around this idea now, but not so much in 2013 when we recorded the episode. And since it is National Poetry Month, here is a very quick poem by Ambrose Bierce titled An Inscription for a Statue of Napoleon. A conqueror as provident as brave, he robbed the cradle to supply the grave. His reign laid quantities of human dust. He fell upon the just and the unjust. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, Tracy, are you watching or did you watch True Detective? I did not. Which uh, you still can. But thanks to its popularity, as you may have heard, it actually crashed HBO Go on its finale night. I did hear that. Because so many people were trying to watch it. Uh Many people have found a renewed or perhaps a new interest in the writing of Robert W. Chambers because of a book of short stories that he wrote in the late 1800s, which was called The King in Yellow. And this book is referenced throughout the season one story arc of True Detective uh, with references to the Yellow King and the wearing of masks in the city of Carcosa. And in turn, Chambers influenced... uh, a whole subgenre of writers of so-called weird fiction, uh, including people like H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> Definitely weird. Well, it's actually called weird fiction. I know. It's not just me going, that's weird. I'm just saying. Uh, and I love weird fiction. So, But influencing Chambers, uh, so going back before the work of Chambers, was actually a man who has been on my list for a long time. Uh, so now seems like the perfect point to focus on him since True Detective pointed at all of this work so much recently. And all of those mentions of Carcosa in True Detective that come up, uh, that name actually shows up in Chambers' work, but it was borrowed from the man we're going to talk about today, who is Ambrose Bierce, who first mentioned it in a short story, which was called An Inhabitant of Carcosa, and that was first published in 1891. And Ambrose Bierce is a really fascinating character. He was a soldier. He was a journalist. He was an editor. He was something of a philosopher. He was a cynic. Uh, He was a very complicated man with an unwavering moral code. Uh, And his life experiences, uh, he touched so many things that are historically significant in his time. Uh, And much of it was fantastic. Much of it was horrific. And it all sort of informed his writing. Uh, Ambrose was born Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce on June 24th, 1842 in Ohio. It was in a settlement called Horse Cave. His parents, Marcus Aurelius and Laura Sherwood Bierce, had 13 children, and Ambrose was the 10th. And here's a fun fact that you can pull out at a cocktail party if you have a conversation lull. Marcus and Laura only named their children names that started with the letter A. So in addition to Ambrose, they were... 
Andrew, Aurelius, Arthur, Abigail, Augustus, Anne, Aurelia, so the female version of Aurelius, Addison, Albert, Amelia, Adelia, and Almeida. I feel like at the end they were just swapping around some consonants to try to make new names. It seems that way, <laughs> but thirteen kids in, it's yeah, creativity might fall away. Uh, there's no, there's no Amanda. Did we have that name yet? Mm-mm. When Ambrose was still a young child, the family moved to Indiana and eventually settled in Elkhart. And Marcus had a really pretty impressive library, uh, which served as a major source of education and inspiration to Ambrose in his early years. He enrolled in the Kentucky Military Institute at 17, and while he excelled, he wound up leaving the school early to take odd jobs. Uh, so this is right on the cusp of the Civil War, and uh, Beers ended up having a really impressive military record during the course of the American Civil War. At the start of the war, Beers' uncle, General Lucius Varus Beers, established two companies of Union Marines. This was in April of 1861. His nephew, Ambrose, was among the men. And it was mere days after Lincoln's call for volunteers when the younger Beers enlisted. Lucius had instilled in Ambrose a strong opposition to the concept of slavery, so he had been really eager to join the war effort. Yeah, just as many other uh, figures we've talked about, and some even recently, uh, the Beers family was very much part of the abolitionist mindset. When Major General George McClellan led an invasion on West Virginia, Ambrose was part of that campaign. The following year, 1862, he was at Shiloh in Hardin County, Tennessee, when it was attacked by the Confederate Army. That battle was devastating for the Union forces, who were taken by surprise, but Beers was one of the survivors who rallied under General Don Carlos Buell and catalyzed a Confederate retreat. And the Shiloh battle was one of the bloodiest of the war, with more than 23,000 casualties. And it's something that came up a lot in his work. Two months later, the newly promoted 2nd Lieutenant Bierce uh, saved his commanding officer's life at the Battle of Stones River in Murfreesboro, Rutherford County, Tennessee. And shortly thereafter, in February of 1863, he was promoted to 1st Lieutenant. And in his role as 1st Lieutenant, Beers served with the 9th Indiana Regiment, and he fought at Chickamauga in September of 1863. Beers was also part of the Atlanta campaign under General Sherman, and this campaign was pretty rough for him personally. He lost his closest friend during the fighting, and he was also struck in the head by a musket shot on June 23, 1864, during fighting at Kennesaw Mountain. Which is close to us. It kind of brings this particular story very close to home. Well, yeah, the whole... Since we're in Atlanta. We're in Atlanta right now. Uh, Beers was treated for his injury, and he returned to the front lines in September, so just a few months later. And he served for several months before being discharged the following January. Uh, Chronic dizziness and fainting spells that were kind of brought on by this head injury had ended his time in the war, but just a few months before the conflict officially ended. It's not really... Surprising to say that the Civil War changed him, because how could it not? He was only 18 when he enlisted, and the horrors of battle affected him pretty deeply. The idealism with which he had entered the service was replaced with this cynicism that would become one of his most fundamental traits. And his time in the war also, as I mentioned earlier, informed a lot of his writing. There have been other authors that wrote about the Civil War, and some of them even served, like Mark Twain, I think, had a brief service. But Ambrose Bierce served more than any of those other writers. He was in the thick of it for almost the entirety. I mean, he enlisted days after 
things began and was only a couple of months before it ended when he was discharged. So those years, he was just constantly involved in the war. And a sad commentary on how deeply his time in the war had changed him. Bierce wrote later in his life, When I ask myself what has become of Ambrose Bierce, the youth who fought at Chickamauga, I am bound to answer that he is dead. Yeah, he was uh, pretty open about how much it had changed him and how sort of bluntly it had uh, ended his idealism. After leaving the war, Ambrose worked in Alabama for a while as a treasury agent. And then in 1866, he was employed by General W.B. Hazen for an expedition into Indian Territory. And Bierce had worked as a topographical engineer under Hazen for a period during the war. And the general wanted his map-making skills again uh, as his team made their way west. This travel with Hazen took Bierce all the way to California. They arrived in San Francisco in 1867, and Bierce decided to stay on the West Coast. And he found employment with the U.S. Mint, but he had begun to work on writing in earnest at the same time. And he started submitting essays and short satire pieces to local papers. He was eventually published in the San Francisco newsletter, and when the managing editor of the newsletter resigned in 1868... Bierce filled the vacancy. Yeah, even though he really didn't have any formal journalism training, he kind of decided he was going to become a journalist and studied on his own and became managing editor of a paper. Uh, And as managing editor, he made a name for himself by taking over the weekly column called The Town Crier. And he really used this as his soapbox to lampoon government officials. We mentioned earlier his sort of... Uh, rigid moral code. And he basically, if he thought anybody was doing anything wrong, he would call them out publicly in his column and write really derisive things about them. Which is pretty aggressive. Yeah. While he was still working as a managing editor, he was also developing another talent outside of journalism by working on short fiction. And so much in the same way as he started his journalism career by submitting essays while working for The Mint, he started submitting his short stories to literary journals. He eventually published his first fictional story, The Haunted Valley, in the Overland Monthly. And before we get to uh, his life sort of blossoming in terms of becoming a family man, is it cool if we pause for just a second for a word from our sponsor? It is. Let's do it. On December 25th of 1871, Bierce married a woman named Mary Ellen Day. And just a few months later, in March of 1872, he quit his job at the paper so that the couple could take an extended honeymoon in London. Although they ended up moving to Bristol not long into their stay abroad uh, because the weather there was more hospitable to Ambrose's asthma. While he was in England, he also worked submitting his writing to British journals. He eventually published work in the journals Figaro, London Sketchbook, and Fun. And he ended up with a regular column in Figaro. Yeah, he was writing comedy, even though I I will talk a lot in this about how sort of dark some of his writing is. Uh, A lot of what he was writing was really, uh, you know, funny little satirical sketches. And this time, while he was in England, was productive for both his career and his family. Uh, The couple's first child, named Day, was born in 1872, and their second son, named Lee, was born in 1874. So they really were having an extended stay in England. And in between these babies, Bierce's first three books were born. The Fiend's Delight, Nuggets and Dust, and Cobwebs from an Empty Skull. 
and after baby number two, the Bierces returned to California in 1875. And not long after they uh, returned to California, they had a third child who was a daughter named Helen. Meanwhile, Ambrose returned to his writing career once they were stateside again. He got a job as an editor of the journal Argonaut. In another case of kind of repeating patterns in his life, he wrote a weekly column that often called out public officials for their moral failings. However, this column, which was called Prattle, also had the leeway to give him an outlet for publishing fiction on a regular basis. He wrote Prattle as editor of Argonaut for three years before setting out on a surprising enterprise. Yeah, it was surprising and short-lived. In 1880, Ambrose took a position as a general manager of a mining company in South Dakota. And while the allure of the job was probably the promise of, you know, significant income, the gold rush had really peaked several years earlier, and the corruption and the general depravity that he encountered uh, soured him on this position almost immediately. I mean, we've mentioned how he liked to really call out people that he thought were morally corrupt. <laughs> so you can imagine an entire business that he felt was just filled with those people was really distasteful. And so by the end of that year, he was back in San Francisco. Beers was about to start writing Prattle again, but not with Argonaut. This time around, his column was featured in Wasp. In addition to using it as a soapbox to call people out for their behavior uh, and for using it for short stories, he also used the column to share pieces about the Civil War, uh, as well as short satirical blurbs that would become the foundation of the Cynic's Word Book, and that would eventually be retitled The Devil's Dictionary. This is the first thing I ever read by him, and that's kind of how I fell in love with Ambrose Bierce. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, and after leaving the Wasp in 1886, and that's one of those things where uh, when you see it written about, there's always, there were lots of reasons he left. Like, he, he was, as you might imagine, not always the easiest man to be around uh, because he did have this sort of very strict code in his head about how people should be and behave. And he was very opinionated and very outspoken about it. Uh, So there are many factors to that exit from the Wasp, and they're not always clear. Uh, But having burned many bridges with his critical column, he had a lot of difficulty finding work after that. So for about a year, he went without a job. Uh, However... A man with a huge reputation for being difficult in his own right came into the picture and changed everything. So Prattle was revived by none other than William Randolph Hearst, who offered Bierce a position at the San Francisco Examiner. This was before Hearst was the media giant that he would later become. The Examiner was his first paper. And Bierce took the job on the condition that he could write whatever he wanted, uh, like no editorial shutdown of anything. And those were terms that Hearst actually agreed to. You know, he had sought out uh, Bierce, so presumably he was willing to be pretty generous with his deal. And so Prattle once again became a combination of uh, Ambrose Bierce's fiction and his social commentary. And this time he built on the work that he did at the Wasp, and he published a much larger volume of his Civil War writings, including An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is probably his most famous work. In this tale, which is was published initially in serial form, a Southern gentleman contemplates his life and reminisces about his home and his family as he's about to be hung by Yankee soldiers. And it's much more complicated than that. Uh, Bierce is sort of a master of sort of shifting what you think is real and what is actually happening. Uh, And the tone of the piece is cold, and in it, a steady diet of violence has kind of jaded all of the players. Uh, 
which is something that comes up again and again in his work. Yeah. This one's my first exposure to Ambrose Bierce. Did you like it when you initially read it? It might have been in school, so it that always in, colors things yeah, a little. Yeah, it was in school, and uh, I don't remember liking or disliking it. <laughs> it's also been made into a film several times. Yes, I also remember watching a film of it in school. So, uh, yeah, there's... It's it's interesting. I feel like having come in from uh, the Devil's Dictionary, which is much funnier and kind of absurdist in some ways, Yeah, I have a much different sort of uh, relationship with him than people that were assigned Civil War stories right. by him when they were kids. Well, it's one of those things that I, I feel like I read it at the same approximate time as uh, reading Romeo and Juliet, uh-huh. which there's it's one of those things where in hindsight I kind of go, is that really the best thing for <laughs> middle schoolers to get their you know first taste of this thing with? But anyway... While Beers had achieved a certain level of success as a writer at this time, his home life was kind of unraveling. He and Mary had grown apart, and he had started to suspect that she was be- uh, being unfaithful, although there was really no evidence of infidelity. Yeah, it's one of those things that, similar to when he left the Wasp, there's a lot of fuzziness around it. There's not a lot of hard details. He thinks that she received two letters from an admirer and... It, it kind of seems like his pride may have caused him to draw conclusions and be dug in about something that really there was no substance to, uh, which is a pity. Because then after almost 17 years of being married, they separated in 1888. Then just a year later, their oldest son, Day, was killed in a gunfight over Day's fiance, who had run off with another man. Both of the young men wound up dying as a result of their wounds. And despite all of this turmoil that was going on in his private life in the late 1880s, uh, the early 1890s were some of Bierce's most successful years as a writer. He published several books, all very quickly. Tales of Soldiers and Civilians aggregated his Civil War stories and got a lot of critical acclaim. The Monk and the Hangman's Daughter is written as a diary of a man struggling with morality, uh, and that was promoted as a translation of a lost German text. Then there's Can Such Things Be?, which is a collection of supernatural short stories, and that one includes An Inhabitant of Carcosa. And he also started at this time to mentor younger writers, uh, and that's something he would do for years, although apparently, you know, he remained a rather critical human being. Like He was very judgmental and critical of others, and he would distance himself from his students and uh, writers he was supposed to be mentoring that he thought weren't very talented or didn't have very original ideas. Like he wouldn't, it sounds like he wouldn't really address it and be like, I don't really think you have what it takes. He would just sort of quietly shut them out. <laughs> he, he was a complicated and difficult man, I think. So right as Bierce's career was at its apex, Hearst sent him to Washington, D.C. What Hearst wanted to do was kind of enlist Ambrose Bierce's vitriol and sense of justice uh, into his fight with against the dealings of uh, Collis Huntington. So Huntington had been accused of being politically corrupt before, and he was trying to slide a bill through Congress, which, if it passed, was going to forgive all the outstanding loans that the government held— Some of these had paid for the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. 
And the reason this was important to Huntington is that he was basically the last man standing of the group that was responsible for building the project. So he was not super interested in bearing the financial burden and paying back all these loans that he now was responsible for. Hearst had gotten wind of Huntington's scheme to shirk all these loans, and he basically sent his journalist attack dog after him. Bierce was not a blind pawn in all of this. He thought that the railroad was corrupt and that Congress shouldn't be helping. And so his skilled rhetoric drew attention to the bill, which was ultimately defeated. And that's a whole episode that, I mean, there have been books just about that event, about the fight of the railroad and and Congress being involved in the legalities of the corruption. And uh, if anybody wanted to explore that, just know it's out there. Uh, Biersch returned to California after all of this for a while, but soon he asked to be transferred to Washington, D.C. permanently. And he and Hearst, as you can imagine, two very opinionated, very outspoken men, uh, were known to butt heads uh, and argue over things like this. But the request was approved, and Biersch moved to D.C. and started writing his pieces uh, for the Examiner as well as the Cosmopolitan from his new home on the East Coast, and that was in 1899. So the 1900s did not start off especially kindly for him. His remaining son, who had followed in his father's footsteps as a journalist, died in 1901 from pneumonia, which might have been complicated by a drinking problem. And in 1905, uh, his wife Mary, from whom he'd been separated since 1888, died of a heart attack. And she had actually only filed for divorce a few months prior to her death, citing abandonment. And there is a whole other um, theory that she thought that Ambrose wanted to get remarried, so she was sort of freeing him from their legal marriage. But he didn't. He didn't uh, ever marry again. From 1909 to 1912, Bierce worked exclusively on a 12-volume collection of his work that was published by Neal Publishing Company. And he wasn't working for Hearst anymore during this time, and he seemed to be kind of done with new writing in general. And once the publication project uh, of that 12-volume collection was complete, Bierce began a tour of Civil War battlefields while he was en route to Mexico uh, to witness Pancho Villa's revolution, which, as you can imagine, was a rather dangerous place for a foreigner to be wandering. Uh, He also squared away all of his personal business in this time, although whether that was just the cautionary preparedness of somebody getting ready to travel to a foreign country that was potentially dangerous, or a man who pretty much recognizes that he's at the end of his life tying up loose ends is a little bit unclear. You know, it would have played out pretty much the same way either way. He wrote a letter to his niece just before he left, and one of the things it said was, If you hear of my being stood up against a Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think that a pretty good way to depart this life. It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs. To be a gringo in Mexico, ah, that is euthanasia. Yeah, it's kind of jovial, but also a little ominous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many people have wondered if he really was just going to Mexico sort of with the intent that he would not ever come back. Uh, there continue to be rumors and theories about that. Uh, And we don't know what precisely happened to him on his travels while he was there. His death date is generally listed as 1913, 1914, question mark. Uh, Sometimes it's just listed as 1914, question mark. We have no way of knowing how long he lived after his last correspondence, which was a letter that he sent from Chihuahua in late December. 
In that letter, he wrote, As to me, I leave here tomorrow for an unknown destination. And some people have read into that 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 was like a suicide note. Uh, and others are like, no, he pro- he was just wandering. He didn't have a plan. And we don't know. Uh, but after it became apparent that he had disappeared and no one had heard from him, his daughter Helen uh, petitioned the U.S. government to investigate what had happened to him. And they did, but nothing was ever found. He really kind of did a thin air move. Yeah. And of course, there have been sightings and theories about what happened, but Ambrose Beers disappeared pretty thoroughly. There was really not any kind of trace to turn over or obsess about. We don't know if he was killed by federal troops, rebels, Pancho Villa himself. Nobody really knows. Some scholars have pointed to the siege of Ohinaga, Chihuahua, in January 1914 as a likely place of his death, but there's really no substantial evidence that's ever been found. Yeah, it's just, you know, a big violent event that happened near where he was last known to be. Uh, So theoretically, that could have easily been a a place where he could have died and been lost kind of in the carnage of the battle. Uh, And when you read Bierce's work, as I've said, there's definitely this sense of darkness and futility and reality juxtaposed with surreality. And his war stories in particular, I find extremely affecting. Uh, Chickamauga, for example, tells the story of this young deaf boy who is on a battlefield, but he believes it's all a game. Like, he thinks he's in either a dream situation or his imagination. And he's so lost in this this imaginary play that he fails to recognize the horrible reality around him, even though uh, Bierce describes the carnage of war with extremely graphic detail. Uh, and similarly in Coup de Grasse, uh, the story centers around a man who kills a friend of his uh, in a mercy killing. The man was wounded and really suffering. And as a consequence, the man that did the mercy killing is executed as a killer himself. And this sort of darkness and cruelty of war is always present in his works, as well as a certain detachment, even in this, you know, pretty intense description of truly grisly scenes. Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why, uh, spoiler alert, if you have never watched Jacob's Ladder, uh, a lot of people look at Jacob's Ladder as a, uh, like a reworking of occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Yes. For the Vietnam War. Yes, that comparison is often made. Yeah. Uh, But his work is not without humor, even though the tone of the humor is usually black. Uh, The Devil's Dictionary, like I said, I find hilarious. It's really snarky. And so to end on a humorous note, I thought we could read a couple of definitions from that work because it is laid out like a dictionary with words and then their meanings as written by Ambrose Bierce. Let's start with love. Noun. A temporary insanity curable by marriage. Quotation, noun, the act of repeating erroneously the words of another. I love that one. I know. (laughs) The the internet needs to see that one. (laughs) There's pray, verb, to ask that the laws of the universe be annulled in behalf of a single petitioner, confessedly unworthy. Politeness, noun, the most acceptable hypocrisy. Well, and this, this next one is funny to me because my brother calls the lottery a stupidity tax, and sometimes I call it a daydreaming license. Lottery, noun, attacks on people who are bad at math. <laughs> and finally, and I just love this one, it's so absurd and wonderful, hash. It's categorized as X. It gets no uh, part of speech assignment. There is no definition for this word. No one knows what hash is. 
delicious corned beef and deliciousness. It's a commentary on sort of the mashed together of things that uh, hash often is. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, Ambrose Bierce. I highly encourage people to read his work. It is easy to get a hold of because almost all of it is on Project Gutenberg. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also many other places online. I mean, you can do a quick search and find just about the entirety of the body of his work. His letters are a little bit harder to get a hold of. Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday Classic. Since this is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar during the course of the show, that may be obsolete now. So here is our current contact information. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're at Missed in History all over social media. That is our name on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.